Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Becoming a resident is an important milestone in the life of every future doctor. After years of late night studying and sacrifice, it's an occasion for medical students to practice the specialty of their choice and to train to become experts in their fields. Our guest today, Dr. Donna Lamb, is the president and CEO of the National Resident Matching Program, or NRMP, an institution that our audience knows very, very well. Her role is vital in ensuring the smooth transition between medical school and residency training for thousands of students in the U.S. and around the world. Dr. Lamb, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Dr. Desai. It's such a pleasure to meet you and to have the opportunity to chat about medical education. So certainly call me Rishi, and I'll say that I can't help but smile uh, when I speak to you because when I think of NRMP, I think of a very feelings-filled time in my life, and those feelings include feelings of anxiety, uh, excitement, a feeling of accomplishment, uh, all of those kind of rolled into one. And so whenever NRMP or the match is mentioned, all those feelings come to the fore for me. I'm sure they do. <laughs> so... Having gotten that off my chest, I'd like to just learn a little bit about what got you started and maybe keeping with the theme of feelings, like what was your initial foray into health and what were the feelings associated with being involved in nursing and your career in healthcare? Well, my career in nursing actually began very unintentionally. <laughs> I was the third child of a teenage mother. And so I spent a great deal of time with my grandparents and my grandfather was a block mason and we fished and we hunted and we gardened to feed the family. So, you know, injuries weren't uncommon, and I became the de facto nurse of the family. So when I turned 13, uh, I, like many other young girls my age, decided to become a candy striper. But my grandmother worked for the general practitioner in town, and he worked in the OR a lot. And lucky for me, he would take me to the OR. So the circulating nurse would gown me up and glove me, and I'd hold retractors, and I'd hold suction and things like that. And by the time, you know, I was 13, 14, I pretty much knew I wanted to be a physician, actually. And I knew I wanted to be a surgeon and dadgum, and I'd have been a good one. But, you know, we were pretty poor and no one in the family had gone to college, uh, not unusual at that time. And then no one could envision me as anything other than a nurse. You know, they didn't see where the money would come from. They didn't think that I would be able to attain the education. And so I was told that medical school was out of the question. So that actually made me kind of mad. Uh, so as a teenager, I went down a bit of a rough road, got in a lot of trouble. And then uh, finally, my science teacher stepped in, Nancy Evers, and she said, you're going to nursing school. And I really didn't have any desire to go to nursing school. But when Nancy Evers told you you were going to do something, you just didn't argue with it. She was one of those women that just, you know, she was the rock. So off I went to nursing school, had a full-time job, graduated at 19, and that pretty much straightened me out because I found that I love nursing. I started out on an orthopedics floor and about a year and a half later transferred to the intensive care units, um, which I absolutely loved and uh, worked in cardiovascular trauma and neonatal intensive care. So, you know, my feelings were never thought I was going to be a nurse, wanted to be a doctor, but, you know, nursing has certainly led me down some paths that have been really good for me personally and for my career. Now, you later received your doctorate in health sciences. Do you mind just explaining to folks what that entails exactly and what health sciences really means? Well, it really is just the study of healthcare administration, finance, leadership, systems, and organizations. You know, the doctoral level study of that. And of course, we did a thesis rather than a real scientific research paper. Adult learning has a very different approach. 
uh, and it integrates that experiential learning into that formal learning process. So, you know, along with the theory and just the work of doing the doctorate program, you know, the real advantage to the doctoral program is it forced me to kind of step back and really assess my systems thinking approach to integrate more objective information and, and to learn how to accept and, and integrate multiple ways of looking at problems and identifying solutions. So that's really what health systems are about. I finished that degree in 2016. And I think, you know, some of that change in how I look at things and how I solve problems really benefited me in terms of, you know, my recruitment to the NRMP because they were looking for ways to continue to innovate in the match so that we can better serve our applicants and programs. You mentioned the NRMP. Do you mind just talking about the background of the NRMP? Why did it come about? What was the need for the NRMP in the first place? Sure. Um, and sorry, this might just take a few seconds because we got to begin in the early 1900s, but <laughs> I'll try and keep a little bit brief. So as you probably know, um, internships were formalized in the early 1900s, and they were quickly seen as very valuable, obviously, to medicine. Um, but by the 1930s, because of that value, you know, there was an explosion of internship positions, uh, and there became more positions than there were graduating medical schools. And of course, this excess of positions then resulted in competition between hospitals to sign medical students to train. And so in order to secure those students, hospitals began what is referred to as an exploding offer, where the offers for training were sent increasingly early, uh, often in the second year. And students had a very limited time to accept or reject the offer. And then students, in turn, recognizing this competition, of course, also wanting to find their best opportunity, just began to hold on to these offers until the very last moment so that they could see what was the best offer they had. And that, of course, further contributed to the bottleneck in the process of offer and acceptance, which just created chaos. And eventually, everybody in the whole process was pretty unhappy. So by the 1950s, critical mass had kind of been met. Something needed to be done. So came the concept for a central clearinghouse for the matching to internships using an algorithm that's based on a confidential rank order list and a uniform timeline. But at that time, students had concerns around the construct of the algorithm. And in 1951, a group of Harvard medical students opposed that algorithm, believing that it actually penalized students for listing REACH programs as their first choice. And so they proposed modifications to the algorithm, which were accepted. And then those changes were implemented in time for the 1952 match, uh, which was seen as broadly successful across medical education. And so it was after this that the NRMP was incorporated in 1953. It was incorporated as an independent 501c3 organization. And it had a singular purpose, and that was to manage the match. So over time, uh, NRMP has continued to build that matching program, and it now uses what's called the Roth Parenson algorithm, uh, which was redesigned in the late 1990s. And it's based on a considerable body of theory and practice of market design, and it has also been recognized by a Nobel Prize in economics. So, you know, 70 years later, the market design principles uh, that the match was founded on are still important for the success of the match. You know, I'm curious, a lot of folks have videos out there on YouTube, social media galore about how to game the match, how to, how to do this or do that. What are some common myths, you know, that you've come across? You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people still say this stuff. You know, it's just not true or, you know, anything else that may be misunderstood about the match. Great question. Um, 
probably the biggest common myth is that we have something to do with the actual application. <laughs> we don't. That's the uh, Association of American Medical Colleges and is run strictly by ARIS. The other myth is that somehow we alter their rank order lists and, you know, line them up in terms of a preference that is unbeknownst to someone. That is absolutely not true. Those rank order lists are confidential. And once those rank order lists are certified, we don't make any changes to the rank order list. Um, so those are probably the two biggest myths that are out there. There are all kinds of myths around the process as a whole, but they're not really about the match. Got it. And then I guess one other thing that comes up a lot, and I hear this, is you know that there's sort of a, a wink, wink, handshake sort of that sometimes happens at the interview, or people say, oh, you know, like I'm going to rank you number one if you rank me number one, all that kind of stuff. Is there any validity to any of that? Like, to your knowledge, does that happen? Is it something that you've heard of? Is it something you guys try to combat? Or is it even an issue? Is it, is it just a non-issue? I'm just curious to get your perspective on that. It's an issue. Um, and that's why the match participation agreement clearly spells out the communications that are allowed during the matching ranking and post-match period. There are communications that are inappropriate, like what you just mentioned. You know, I'll rank you if you'll rank me. But a common misperception or misunderstanding is that you can't tell somebody where you're going to match them. You as a program can say to an applicant, I'm going to rank you highly in hopes of having you match. And then you can say, hope to see you there. What you can't say is where are you going to rank me? An applicant can say to the program, I'm going to rank you highly. I really want to train here. But they can't turn around and say, are you going to rank me? So, you know, there is communication that can go back and forth and it can certainly go back and forth at any point before the rank order list is certified that, you know, you kind of give that informal signal of, you know, I'm really interested in you and I really want to be here. So that's not a problem, but there absolutely are behaviors around communication and, you know, the wink, wink, nod, nod that happen. And that's exactly what the policies are for. It's what our violations process is for so that when they are reported, uh, we can address them appropriately with programs and with applicants. Um, you know, and we communicate as much as we can uh, in terms of what these policies are and why they're in place to help protect applicants and prevent persuasion. But, you know, humans are humans. And Sometimes they ask questions that we wish they wouldn't. I'm curious also whether this NRP approach has been used in other countries, like internationally, how common is this exact system or something like it? Um, well, we do run a match in Abu Dhabi. And so other systems and the Canadian system also has a match that uses an algorithm, but, you know, they focus on nationals first. And they place nationals before they begin to place international medical graduates, which for them would be us. So, you know, their rules are considerably different uh, and we don't oversee the rules in Canada. That is not our match. That's another uh, organization. But, you know, we don't oversee any binding commitments or any communication issues or placement issues of those other countries. And then to your knowledge, is anything like this used in other sectors? Something of law, business, like in other industries and sectors or verticals, where is something like this similarly used? Well, economics definitely uses it as this is, you know, a market design theory. I don't know off the top of my head what other industries use it. I, my understanding is that there are some school systems which have used uh, the algorithm in order to place students into schools, but lower schools, not colleges. 
but economics is probably the best known uh, sector of uh, professions that uses the algorithm because of the market design principles that apply to economics as well as they apply to residency matching. You know, in recent months, we've had a lot of conversations nationally about diversity, especially in the physician workforce. And I'm curious whether there's a way for the NRMP to address these issues. And if so, walk me through that. How would that work? Yeah, diversity is a complex issue, and it certainly predates the pandemic, right? But it's it's further complicated by this persistent, uneven diversity, I believe, in the pipeline programs that would support a more diverse medical education there's also a lack of diversity in medical school graduates and the residents who are someday going to provide care to our community. I mean, if you look at the 2028 AMC data on race, ethnicity, and gender, you can see that the demographics of medical school matriculants, which feed the programs, really has not changed over the last 10 years. And they really don't reflect the demographics of the US population. So all of these factors around diversity and what contribute to it certainly have a downstream effect for the implications of the match. To get kind of a better sense of what the movement from medical school to residency really looks like and to better inform the medical education community about the behaviors that are affecting diversity during the recruitment period for residency, the NRMP actually on September 15th this year uh, began to expand our research agenda to collect primary source demographic data. And you know, a lot of organizations do that, but our intent is to pair that data with ranking and match outcomes to help us better understand what the diversity patterns look like throughout this recruitment cycle. We really need to ask some hard questions. Where are certain applicants ranking? And what are the attributes of the programs that they favor? I mean, are there patterns in certain specialties? But even more broadly, you know, we need to ask questions around whether underrepresented applicants are realizing the same opportunities as white applicants. You know, are applicants not selecting regions of the country or programs because of the culture or that the curriculum doesn't align with their personal or professional needs? The NRMP has historically not used ranking data in research, but we need to. And it's important that we begin to now because this is one of the pieces of the puzzle that the community is missing. And I don't think that we can truly understand the issue of diversity and residency unless we do this work. Have you seen the number of applicants increase over the last couple of years, thinking back to what they sometimes call the Fauci effect, you know, where people are kind of more drawn to this field? And then if you've seen that, how do you reconcile the increased demand or need on one side with what seems like a fairly fixed number of clinical opportunities on the other? From your perspective, do you mind walking us through kind of how that pipeline gets built out to be more robust, to get more people into these programs? Well, there are certainly concerns around equivalent expansion of positions and learning opportunities. Let me first clarify, though, you know, that the NRMP is impartial when it comes to the number of applicants or positions because we don't have any input into either the acceptance of medical students or residents, nor do we have any input into the approval of these training positions. So this is merely my opinion. But there are several things that kind of play into this issue of expansion and its equivalency. And some of them, you know, we talk about every day, including like the number of medical schools, you know, they're a little under 200, with 30 of those being new since 2006. Um, along with that, there's been increases in class sizes and, you know, the number of students that have graduated have increased by about 35% since 2006. 
programs and positions have actually only increased over the last five years at a rate of about 18%, which isn't very high. And of course, there's always issues with the funding of the residency programs and how you create more of those positions. But, you know, the expansion is a little bit bigger than that, I think. You know, I think that we also need to consider the geographic distribution of the medical schools and programs and, and how that affects the clinical learning opportunities. I think the availability and qualifications of GME leadership. I mean, if you look at the ACGME data, there's around a 13% turnover rate of designated institution officials. And it's important for us to have that deep knowledge of medical education leadership in sponsoring institutions in order to create these residency programs that create value for our medical students. Same thing with program directors. You know, there's a fairly hefty turnover. It's around 12% per year. And again, you need qualified program directors and stable program staff in order to have good programs. You know, there's some relief on the horizon. Obviously, the Consolidation Appropriations Act of 2021 intends to add about 1,000 positions over a period of five years, beginning in 2023. But, you know, we have to keep looking at other interventions, you know, federal and state funding mechanisms, innovative training environments, and, you know, other things that people much smarter than me are going to think of. But, you know, without some sort of intervention, I don't know how we solve the problem of equivalent numbers of training positions. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and of course, as a result, there are folks that don't match at all. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what support you've seen those folks get and whether that has shifted as time has gone on. You know, walk us through what happens when people don't match. Yeah, I actually wish I could answer that question for you more fully. In the 2021 main residency match, there were a little over 9,000 active applicants. Those are the folks who have certified a rank order list who didn't match. And of course, the highest group of those were the international medical graduates, which about 45% didn't match. And then the U.S. citizen foreign medical school applicants uh, didn't match at a rate of about 40.5%. And this doesn't include the folks who never entered the match because they didn't submit an application or those folks who withdrew, perhaps they didn't finish their graduate medical education training, or those folks who didn't submit a certified rank order list. So currently, you know, the NRMP doesn't track the trajectory of the unmatched applicants, and, and it will be hard for us to do because many of those are non-U.S. citizen IMGs, and we really don't have any way of tracking them. Their support is within their medical schools, and certainly um, I do believe that schools are making efforts to assist those students. Certainly those sponsored applicants uh, receive some support, but I don't have direct knowledge of what each of those schools are doing. You know, we do need to engage in the research again. They did it about 10 years ago at the NRMP, but we need to engage in research again, looking at, you know, those unmatched applicants who actually participated in the match to see, did they come back through, you know, were they, were they matched at a later time? Um, but some of these applicants got positions outside of the match once SOAP concluded, and we're going to have a hard time, you know, understanding that data unless we work with the ACGME and with state licensing boards, but that work needs to be done. Earlier, you mentioned Canada and how Canada views uh, Canadians differently than U.S. trained folks. Do you mind reflecting on how in the U.S. residency programs may be thinking about IMGs, international medical graduates versus U.S. nationals, and whether that thinking has shifted or changed over the years? Well, I think that's a pretty controversial topic. <laughs> Um, 
and I think that it varies by specialty, right? Some specialties like internal medicine certainly have higher rates of recruitment for international medical graduates. Um, so to speak to how a specialty or how programs feel about it, I, I don't really feel like I'm qualified, but we can certainly see that there are some specialties. I think medical genetics and genomics, I think nuclear medicine, I think there's two or three other specialties that have fairly high percentages of international medical graduate recruitment. But, you know, I think as a whole, I would be hesitant to try and guess, you know, how medical education as a whole feels about international medical graduates other than seeing their value, you know, and seeing the value in, in recruiting them into our programs. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me. I mean, I, I have a number of friends that are IMGs that have traveled that path and in its in some cases, disheartening to see them struggle so much more, even though uh, in every way they're just as qualified. And, and so I appreciate uh, your sentiment on that. You know, I, I'm also curious, you've mentioned in the past, you publicly encouraged politicians to look at solutions to deal with things like student loan debt. I wonder if you could comment a little bit about that or, or specific ideas or suggestions you've heard that you think really have a lot of merit. Well, again, there's so many suggestions out there. I retweeted some testimony <laughs> that was given in March uh, by Professor Atkinson and Dr. Derek. She's at the UC Berkeley School of Law and Dr. Derek Hamilton at the Institute on Race and Political Economy at the New School. And they were testifying for uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren at the Senate Committee. And Senator Warren's point was, you know, 43 million Americans carry $1.5 trillion in student loans. And, you know, some people attribute this to Ivy League schools or at high income folks who don't want to pay back their student loan. And Dr. Atkinson's point was that, you know, historically, you know, Ivy League graduates are not carrying the highest student loans, that it is actually individuals who are in regional schools, community college, private schools. Um, but Dr. Hamilton had some interesting perspectives, of course, that, you know, millennials hold record levels of debt. 30-year-olds have the lowest home ownership since the Great Depression. He also talked about the disproportionate debt load by race and that, you know, four years after graduation, Black students tend to hold $50,000 in debt, whereas a white student will hold about $30,000 in debt. And he said something else that just really struck me, um, given that I'm a little ways away from Medicare age, but still... <laughs> Um, you know, he pointed out that there are people who are collecting social security who are still paying student debt. So it really hit me because, you know, I began to think, you know, student debt has to be something larger than generational or racial. It has to be a larger moral justice issue that we need to grapple with as a society. And so, you know, I believe that the U.S. could probably implement some sort of a drawdown on these student loans probably not a complete relief because that would be extraordinarily expensive and frankly would probably take away from the government being able to administer other programs that are aimed at disadvantaged populations. And of course, we don't want to do that. But, you know, when we look again at that data from AAMC around medical student debt, and we consider that those are pre-pandemic data, you know, it's really scary to think about doctors graduating today who may be incapable of paying off their student loans until 2045, 2050, depending on their employment, depending on their debt load, cost of living, which Lord knows what's going to happen with that, right? So it's a lot. You know, I mean, my family had to make some tough choices. 
uh, for me. And I had to make some tough choices about whether or not I could accrue student loan debt in order to go to medical school. And, you know, their answer was no, and I didn't know any better. But, you know, for today's graduates, if you look at medical school graduates, you know, applicants are carrying somewhere on average between $200,000 and $250,000 worth of debt. I mean, it's not just about money. It's also, it's becoming a mental health issue. It's becoming, you know, a family issue. It's so much larger than just money at this point. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, there's a, an immense amount of uh, suicide risk among medical students, and it's really scary and it's really sad because these are the folks that are going to be taking care of patients, uh, and if they're carrying around this emotional burden, that's that's really unfortunate. What advice would you give a current medical student that is going to be applying in the match maybe in the coming years? What would you say to that person if you cross paths? In respect to the match, you know, I would say and I hope this comes out the right way, um, you know, really take the time to understand your rights and responsibilities and be proactive. I mean, as you pointed out at the beginning of the podcast, this process, this whole process, you know, going through medical school is stressful, but certainly this recruitment process is very stressful. And the matching system is intentionally designed through the algorithm and through our policies to protect your ability as an applicant to choose the program that you wanna be in and the type of training that you wanna do. And for you to have the opportunity to really investigate you know, the multiple specialties to ensure that what you're actually selecting at the time of the match is what you wanna do. It's the specialty you wanna be in. It's a program that you want to train in. And the process actually allows you to not be pressured while doing so. so I think if I could say anything at all, I would say, you know, really understand your rights and responsibilities. You know, they're written pretty clearly in the match participation agreement. They're certainly up on our website, but, you know, anybody can reach out to our policy team and ask them to provide a copy if they'd like. But I think that's probably the most important takeaway for applicants that are applying for the match. I think that's a fantastic piece of advice, and I hope that everyone listening gets a chance to take advantage of that and follow through with that because it's just so important. Listen, I know how valuable your work is, and I appreciate you taking time away from that work to be with us today, Dr. Lynn. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Rishi. It was so great to meet you. Thank you for having me on. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>